Welcome to the OA Virtual Kitchen Sink Meeting Podcast. Visit the Los Angeles Intergroup at oalaig.org for information on how to join our meeting live and how to donate to support this meeting and our podcasts. The opinions expressed on the Kitchen Sink Podcast are those of the individual speakers and do not represent OA as a whole. And now, our speaker. My name is Joe and I am a compulsive overeater. I'm going to share my screen and show some photographs. Uh, First of all, just to give you an idea where I was at. This is me at about age nine or 10. I'm the person in the middle. As you can tell, I'm very thin and very uh, short. Uh, This was me at age 13. Uh, I was uh, uh, still very thin and also, this was age 13, and for those of you that are old enough, the the uh, end thing was not uh, Air Jordans. They were white and black shoes, and uh, so I had those and was a na- uh, sort of a fancy dresser, and this was me two and a half years later. I went up to somewhere around 325 pounds. Uh, I don't remember. I, If you can understand this, I didn't weigh, but uh, my, my waist was somewhere around... Um, 56, 58 inches, something like that. And this was me at age uh, about, I would say, five years before I came into the program. And if you stick around the program long enough, you may end up like this. And uh, this is me uh, in recovery. I think it was my 20th anniversary at a Halloween party in a Mardi Gras costume. And this, if you don't know it, is as Roseanne's house. Uh, and that is Roseanne walking across the driveway. She saved my life. And let me see how I can stop and share. Okay. Uh, in February of 1983, I, or in January of 1983, I was waking up every morning and I would do one of two things. I would either say the Lord's Prayer, which was sort of odd because I was an atheist or agnostic by that time, or I would think about getting the gun out of the drawer next to my bed and shooting myself in the head. I was totally and absolutely miserable. And for the most part, on a daily basis, I just wanted to die. That was the way that I felt. I just wanted to die. And I bought a building with two other people who were six years sober in AA, And I think they realized after about two weeks that they had three choices. They could either sell the building at a great economic loss, they could drink again, or they could get me into a 12-step program. I could come in and I could pick out a person's weak points. I could sort of stab them in the back with them and then walk out laughing as they were crying. That was the kind of person that I was. I was just a real big asshole. And uh, you would not have liked me. Uh, I was, I had, you know, I, I just, like I said, I wanted to die. And they started to 12 step me by saying in the room across from our AA on Friday meeting on Friday night, there's an OA meeting. And, you know, a lot of our friends that went there and, you know, they got thin. Now I wasn't at my top weight thin. I was only about 265 pounds. Uh, and, uh, I was going up fast back up. Uh, I lost a lot of my weight in 1978. Uh, I went on a diet where I went from 272 pounds down to 141 pounds in nine months. And uh, I did it by eating a bowl of vegetable soup and a glass of iced tea for lunch. 
And then I would have a very, very heavy dinner of 35 to 50 milligrams of Valium dropped in three or four scotches. And that was all that I had for nine months. And I lost a lot of weight. And of course, I had that theory that if I was just thin, my life would be okay. And of course, it wasn't. And I started to gain weight again once I picked up that very first compulsive bite after that diet. And I went off of that diet. Uh, I just didn't think the diet would work for me because the only time I had ever lost weight in my life was through drugs. Uh, you know, the scotch and the Valium, the, when I was 17, 18, 19, I lost a lot of weight on little black and white pill called black and white mollies, uh, diet pills. And, you know, the doctor gave me 30 and said, if you need more, let me know. And I would, you know, if one is good, three is better. That was my attitude. So I just didn't think it would work. But on a Saturday night, on a Friday, on a uh, Saturday uh, in May of 1983, I was driving along the freeway and I was probably drinking a Coke, large, large Coke and eating a couple of candy bars because I was going to do something that I didn't want to do once again, because I couldn't say that hardest word in the English language, no. And so I was driving along and there was a car parked on the freeway and I hit the car at about 60 to 70 miles an hour. And I walked away, no seatbelt. I did hit the windshield, I think. I don't remember real well, but I walked away basically unhurt. Went to the doctor on Monday and I'd had a... a, a um, physical a couple of weeks before, and he said that uh, you really need to lose weight. And I said to him, and he said, the only reason you weren't hurt in the wreck is because you're so fat. And I said to him, I've been thinking about going to Overeaters Anonymous. I think that that was when I took the first step, even though I had never heard the first step. I had never been to a 12-step meeting, but I knew that I was powerless over food and that my life was unmanageable. And the two people that were to bring me to the program had something that I wanted, which was serenity and peace of mind. I went back and I told them I wanted to go to a meeting on Friday night. And so they took me to the first meeting on Friday, my first meeting on Friday night, which was the Friday night before Memorial Day, 1983. They sat on either side of me in the back of the room where I sat, I think, to kind of hold me down in case I wanted to leave because I was scared. I just didn't think it would work. And I heard some things in that meeting that were to change my life. First and foremost, I heard there is a solution to the way that I felt on the inside. Two was that you're only as sick as your secrets. And three is that you eat three meals a day, nothing in between, and you don't eat sugar. And I went home that night. I read read some uh, pamphlets, uh, basically a dignity of choice. And I picked out a plan of eating. And the next morning, I met with the two people that uh, brought me in the program, and I had some questions like, you know, do I need to go to more than one meeting a week? They said that might be a good idea. Two, I said, you know, is is this a cult like the Moonies? Because there seemed to be a lot of chanting and praying in that meeting. And I wasn't sure that I could remember that prayer that they said at the beginning of the meeting because it seemed so long, you know, the serenity prayer. And so, you know, I just sort of, I, I went from there and it was Memorial Day weekend and it happened and I live in Houston. They were having a big family reunion. So I went to a family reunion on Saturday of Memorial Day, 1983. And I made the mistake of telling them I was on a diet. 
And all weekend I heard, Joe, can we make you something special? Joe, uh, Joe can't eat that. We can't make ice cream this weekend. And so I heard that all weekend. And on Monday, when I left the family reunion, I had had three moderate meals a day and nothing with sugar in it. And that has been my abstinence and my plan of eating since uh, Memorial Day weekend of 1983. And if I make it, I'll have 40 years in, in this coming Memorial Day. And, uh, you know, I think that's when I took the second step, even though, again, I really wasn't familiar with it. And because it was the first time in my life that I had been around my family and I hadn't overeaten, that I haven't stuffed the feelings. I went back. I went started going to meetings. Uh, I got a sponsor right away. Uh, I wanted to. Uh, I knew, though, that, however, I needed to do the third step. And the third step came for me out of the thing that you're only as sick as your secrets. And so I went to uh, lunch one day about a month and a half after I'd been in the program on my plan of eating and everything with the two people that brought me in the program. And I was going to tell them my deepest, darkest secret that weekend. And they, I couldn't do it over lunch. I just couldn't. Of course, I found out later I did everything over lunch or dinner or breakfast, but we were coming back and I was, we were talking about the building and I said, you know, I almost uh, didn't buy the building. They said, why not? And I said, because I'm gay. And they said, Joe, we know we still love you. And that was when I took the third step. That was when I was willing, no matter what anybody said, no matter what anybody did, that I was going to be true to Joe and to thine own self be true, which is what on the AA coin. And so, you know, that was the start of my of my life in Overeaters Anonymous. I then started the fourth step. My first sponsor wanted to wait a while and I said, no, I need to get started right away. I was traveling about three weeks a month. I was on planes. I was in airports. I was in hotels. And you can stay absent and do that. If you really want to stay absent, you can stay absent anywhere. I can eat almost any place and stay abstinent. And so what I did was I, I carried a notebook with me and I started to do the fourth step and I would write a name down and I would become so angry or so emotional. I had to put it away, come back later, maybe a day, maybe two hours later. And I'd write what the person did. It took me about six months to really do my my first fourth step. And I I uh, finally gave it away to somebody. I got sober in October 6th of 1983 and I gave it to someone in OAA. And I really came away very, very on the highest high that I've ever had in my life because I had gotten rid of my secrets. And especially he had some very good things to say about me being molested by my uncle when I was uh, 11 years old and some emotional incest by my grandmother, sexual abuse by my grandmother. By the way, when she died, uh, I, I had slept with her arm in arm for two or three years at 13 and then when she died, no one told me how to grieve. And so I would stay awake to three o'clock and four o'clock in the morning. And uh, the uh, I would couldn't sleep. I'd be thinking about things. What's life? What's death? You know, the things you shouldn't think about as a child. And so I one night called my mother and I said, I can't sleep. And she gave me the secret to not feeling your feelings. She said, go into the kitchen, get some cookies and milk and drink it, and eat the cookies, and you will not, you will be able to go to sleep, and so I went 
That was what the start of. And in two and a half years after that, you saw the thin pictures of me. I had gained about 200 pounds or more. And uh, so, you know, uh, he had a lot of good things to say about me uh, had been molested by my uncle, my grandmother and everything. I came from a high. The problem was two months later, he went out and molested an 11 year old boy. And the anger that came up for me was so great that I almost drank and ate over it. But what I did instead was what I've done all my life in OA is that I went back to the basics of the program. I did another four step. I gave it away to my sponsor. I went to meetings. I talked about it. Uh, and I, I got those feelings out. Uh, I uh, did another four step, came across again with a high. Six and seven are the steps. I hate to say this, but I'm still working on them 40 years later. Uh, for me, step six is not doing the things I want to do. Step seven is doing the things I don't want to do. And this is especially true in relationships. I had no relationships when I came in this program. I had lived in the fourth largest city in the United States, and I knew exactly three people outside of my business. And uh, they were, two of them were uh, the two people that brought me into the program. And uh, the other one was a gay man who just scared the heck out of me because I was so deep in the closet. I see I'm five minutes, so that's fine. Uh, I, uh, I, I am still working on step six and seven. I've done eight and nine and I worked the other 10, 11 and 12. I'd like to talk a little bit about step six and seven. Because what I had to do was to learn how to socialize with people. That first meeting that I went to, my, those two people dragged, drugged me out to coffee afterwards with some, uh, some men. And I didn't know how to interact. I didn't know how to talk. I didn't know how to communicate with them. And what I had to have had learned how to do in, in Overeaters Anonymous and other things is I have had to learn how to communicate on an intimate level with other people. I've had to learn how to sit down and just listen. You know, that's been one of the most important things is just sitting down and learning how to listen to someone else. Because, you know, I always wanted to interject what I knew, whatever. I have an assistant that has been with me for 23 years. Uh, we, we have learned how to communicate with each other because I had at one time about 10 employees. And when I shut my business at down about five years ago, uh, the, the youngest one had been with me for 15 years. And what it was, was I started to treat my employees like I treated people in the program. I listened to them. I knew their families. I talked with them. I was listening to them. I was, I was able to communicate with them. And, you know, most people say, oh, well, they become, that's just not the way to run a business. But, you know, they became more efficient. They became more loyal and they became better employees because I use step six and seven on them. Today, I, you know, uh, my assistant will come in on Monday or Tuesday. She's off Monday and we'll talk for a few minutes and we'll talk about what I did on the weekend. We'll talk about what she did, what her family did on the weekend. She has a, a brother and addictive brother that is not in recovery. She has an Al-Anon mother. We'll talk about it. I'll just listen. 
And so it's that communication between me and another individual that is the most important thing in my life today. You know, I uh, I used to believe that, you know, the fine house, the big car, the beautiful boyfriend, all of those things were important. But what's important is how I feel about me, how I feel about me. I think that for me, the steps have become trying to become neutral with the past. In other words, I don't let the past interfere with what is going on today. I don't let the past interfere with, you know, my actions today. Uh, you know, uh, I was a very angry person for the first four or five years in Overeaters Anonymous. And I, it took someone telling me that I was angry, that I had to start to deal with the anger. Probably the only anger that I really exhibit today is when people drive too slow in front of me or too fast in back of me. And, you know, but I don't give them a certain sign. I don't try to slam on my brakes. I just pull over because in Texas, you'll get shot. Anyway, uh, what it is, is I work on me on the inside. And when I work on the inside, what happens is the outside becomes better. You know, in our original brown book, which we used to call the chocolate book, if some of you have been around, it was a brown covered book. Uh, there was a deal that by, I think that in the preface, it said, you know, thin will not make you well, but well will make you thin. And I followed that for most of my life in OA. Uh, also, too, is it there was in there, I pray before every meal. It's a short prayer that was in that book that, God, thank you for this beautiful food and please help me not to overeat. Uh, I read three or four meditation books every morning. I meditate for a few minutes. I'm not a real big meditator. I text or call people. I work the program on a regular basis. I try to work the program on a regular basis. The other thing that has been a hallmark of my recovery and has helped me more than anything else was very early on, I committed to making coffee at a meeting. That shows how long ago I came in. And I made a commitment that as long as I had a service position, I wouldn't break my abstinence. I've had a service position of some kind for the last 39 years and 10 months. Uh, I have served at a, both a local level, a regional level, and I've, I've served also on the board of trustees of Overeaters Anonymous. All of those have been not because I thought being president of OA would make me feel better. It was because I was doing service for other people. And most of the time, even here in Houston, they didn't even know. I know that someone asked me about two months after I was on the board of trustees. We heard you were on the board of trustees. And I said, oh, yeah, and then changed the subject. And it was not about ego. Service for me is not about ego. It is about making sure that when somebody walks into the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous, that they hear the message that I heard at that very first meeting. And that was, there is a solution to the way that you feel. There is a solution to the way that you feel. Today, my life is not perfect. You know, I get people that want me to sponsor because they think I'm perfect. I'm not perfect. I still fight depression. I am clinically depressed. Antidepressants do not work for me. I have to, I fight depression on a on a regular basis. This week has been very bad for me, but I'm here at this meeting and I'm talking about it and I'm looking at the solution rather than the problem. 
Uh, as Dr. Paul said in Dr. Attic Alcoholic is, if you focus on a problem, the problem increases. If you focus on the solution, the solution increases. So what I'm doing today is I'm still focusing on Joe. I'm focusing on how I can make myself a better person. And I'm focusing on what I can do today to help Overeaters Anonymous be here for other people. I have two or three service commitments that I still make. And it's something that is very, very important. I, I think one of the reasons probably was I heard first when I heard came in, I'll talk for about another minute and then quit, is that, you know, service is slenderizing. Whether it is or not, I don't know. But, you know, uh, I've maintained, uh, actually, I I lost weight during COVID. I tightened up. I went from eating at restaurants, completely in restaurants, to cooking at home. And I went back to very basics of cooking. So I lost probably 35 pounds during COVID. But what it is, is I follow my plan of eating on a regular basis, no matter what. I communicate with other people. I read the literature and I do service. And that is what I do on a regular basis. Uh, I like to end every share that I have with this, which is, you know, uh, the uh, they say in, in Alcoholics Anonymous, even if your ass is falling off, don't drink. I like to say, even if your ass is falling off in OA, don't overeat. And if you don't overeat, more than likely your ass will fall off. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. At 9.30, 9.31, there is no break in this meeting. The LA Intergroup requests that you continue to contribute as we are still have operating expenses, including the subscription costs of this service. Please go to donateoala.org for a direct link to our PayPal account, and please specify your supporting kitchen sink. Any amount is appreciated. Uh, we've already read the 12 traditions. Um, this is the time for questions only. There is no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leader are my own and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself. If you have a question, please click the raise your hand icon. The secretary will call on you and you can unmute and ask your question. Uh, okay. Are there any questions? Jolene. Oh, I'll let the secretary call. Go ahead. No, go ahead, Joe. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, Jolene. I am trying to. Okay. Hi. <laughs> great, great share. Um, I struggle with depression, too, a lot. And I wanted to know when you find that negative self-talk in your brain, that's just called a disease brain. Um, how do you keep that from how do you bypass that so it doesn't lead you to the to the food? Like, how do you deal with that? I, if that's I think, an appropriate question. Yeah, it is very much so. Uh, when my first sponsor, when I came into this program, had me do something that was really, really hateful. He had me get in front of my mirror at nude at night and find five things that I loved about my body. And uh, I hated that because I, you know, it was hard to find. This morning when I looked in the mirror nude, I, I looked at my body and I loved my body the way it was. And so what I try to do is I try to, I, one is I look at my gratitude list. I write a gratitude list when I'm, I'm really deep depression. But the most important thing was 
I'm only as sick as my secrets. And what I have to do is I talk about my depression. Like I talked about it at this meeting, even though I could have never mentioned it. And I talk about my depression. I am also looking at other alternatives to depression. And I won't talk about them here, but some uh, some other things that I'm looking at. Because I have suffered from clinical depression, I think, most of my life. Also, too, I highly recommend a letter that Bill Wilson wrote. If you will Google Bill Wilson depression letter, it will come up. And it changed my life when I looked at that. Bill Wilson suffered from clinical depression most of his life. He did try a few things that I'm not willing to try, like LSD. But what it is, it talks about the fact is that he believed that a lot of his depression came from his dependence on people rather than God. And so, you know, one of the readings, I think the reading yesterday or today and for today said that it's if in for today book uh, said, you know, uh, one of the important things that a person looked at was. Uh, I, I'm going to read it real quick. I could hardly believe my ears when I heard the OA saying, what people think of me is none of my business. When, you're, when your confidence is down around your ankles, thanks to your helplessness over food and fat, self-worth tends to go up and down with the tides of other people's opinion. With freedom from compulsive overeating and the return of my self-respect, I understood what the saying meant. Today, I value the good opinion of my fellow human beings, but good or bad, what others think cannot diminish the good feelings I have about myself. For today, the OA program gives me the self-confidence all creative people have. How imp- improvised the world would be if the, its original thinkers, its artists, writers, scientists, and philosophers took adverse criticism as a sign of their inferiority and turned to some other line of work. So I really believe, you know, that was important to me. What other people think of me is none of my business. Of course, the other part that I always add is really terrible, too. It says other people are other people don't need to know what I think of them. And so, you know, that that is really important. The other thing that I did is I'm an artist. I'm a creative person. About 10 years ago or seven years ago, I did a series of nude self portraits of myself. And I have not. Sorry, I can't do that. Okay, sorry. Go away, Sherry. Uh, a nude self-portraits of myself. And I have not, I have been willing to show them to other people. I'm trying to prepare a, a gallery show of them right now. And that was to let me look at my body and accept my body as it is. Because, you know, I had to make my goal weight what it is today if I'm eating healthy for my body which means that if I'm overweight, I'm eating to bring it to a healthy weight. If I'm underweight, I'm bringing it to bring it to a healthy weight. And if I'm at a healthy weight, I'm eating to maintain it. So I really have to accept my body today. And I believe that that the way to do it is to love myself as I am. Okay, does that answer it? Uh, We had another one, Dr. Somebody. Who's next? Cheryl. Hi, Joe. Thank you for your awesome and amazing share. 
I too have a depression related question. I've been in and out of the program for 40 years. Uh, I relapsed a number of years ago because I was diagnosed and still have debilitating depression, anxiety. My question to you is this. I find during this, this period of abstinence that although I'm abstinent and I'm not compulsively, compulsively overeating or binging, my food choices are based on my depression and anxiety. I choose food that will treat my depression, that will either lift me up or bring me down. Did you experience that? And then if you did, did you deal with it? And if you dealt with it, how did you deal with it? Thank you very much. Uh, I once went to a Chinese restaurant for lunch about every three times a week. And one day after about three or four months, the the waitress, the person who took the order said, you do know that we have dishes other than this dish. I have certain restaurants I go to when I know that I'm in my depression and I order the same thing that I've ever ordered. I have, I can tell if I'm having problems with the food or something is that if I go to a restaurant to eat and I say no, and then I go to another one, and then I go to another one, that something's happening. And then I go to a restaurant where I know that there is safe food for me. In other words, a salad or or something. Uh, here in Texas, we have a cafeteria called Luby's where they have a Luan platter, which is a reduced portion of meat and uh, two vegetables. Uh, people used to tell me in the program that I had shares in it because I used to say it was great. But what it was is I know it's a safe place. I ate there yesterday, fact. And so I have these safe places when I know that I'm in depression and I want to change my plan of eating in some way. I go there and I eat there and I let that be my meal. Does that make sense? Okay, thank you. Melissa? Hi, Joe. Thank you so much for your share today. It was lovely. Um, can you share with us how you reach or reach for your your higher power, what that looks like for you throughout the day, morning, evening, whatever? Thanks. Yes. Um, I normally do this on a longer share, but I'll do it real quickly here. I found an autobiography that I had written as an 11 year old kid. And it was it was really I had problems when I came in because I was basically an agnostic or an atheist. And I wanted nothing to do with God. Uh, uh, And I found this autobiography uh, a year or so into the program. I won't read you at all, but there's one on the second page. It said, then I studied to be a preacher. Then I preached at Linwood Methodist Church. I went to that church as a boy. In 1979, the church needed a new home new room. So I won $25,000 on name that tune. Then in 19, I said 81, it was that when I was preacher on the spaceship Colleen, where I wrote the book of book of my life. Then in 1885, I'm in 1985, I started the first church on Mars. In 1990, I wrote the story of my life called the Oklahoma boy. What this showed me was I had a pretty big ego, even at 11 years old, but I had a loving, caring God. I had a God that loved me exactly the way I was. What happened? When I found out that I was gay 
after the uh, the uh, incest, after the molestation, I lost God. Uh, and, you know, uh, and and the churches that I went to condemned me because I was a gay man. Uh, I lost what God was to me, which was a loving, caring God. And so what I had to do was I had to go back to that God of my childhood. I had to find a loving, caring God that loved me exactly as I was without any ifs, ands, or buts. And so what I did was, and I also had to find, and this was something that my first or second sponsor had me do was I had to write on, is is your God big enough to handle your food? Is your God big enough to handle your food? And what I had to do was I had to find a God that was big enough to handle everything in my life. I misread the third step. I thought it said, turn your will and life over to lives, life over to the care of God. It's lives over to the care of God. So I had to turn over my food life. I had to turn over my uh, OA life. I had to turn over my relationship life. I had to turn over all of my lives, not just one life to God. And that meant that I had to find that God that was big enough to handle all of that. Uh, I heard first in my first meeting or one in my first month that you get down on your knees and you ask God, you thank God for keeping you sober and absent or so absent and then for the day. And then you ask him to keep you absent the next day. I've been doing that for 40 years. I did it last night. I'll do it tonight. And I say a short prayer. Uh, I'm not a, you know, God knows everything about me. So I don't need real long prayers. It basically, mostly my prayer is, uh, the short prayer before I, you know, God, thank you for this beautiful food. Please help me not to overeat. At night, it's usually, uh, uh, God, thank you for keeping me sober and abstinent. Please keep me sober and abstinent tomorrow because I cannot do it. And please not me, let me not hurt anyone, including myself. Let me not hurt anyone, including myself. Today, I have a God of my understanding. Uh, you know, one of the important things that I heard in my first meeting was, or in my first groups of meetings was, you know, are we human beings trying to have a spiritual being? Are we try, are spiritual beings trying to have a human experience? And I believe that I am a spiritual being having a human experience. And I need to go back to that spiritual thing. By the way, that is is a quote from a uh, Jesuit priest, Pierre Thierry Teljujan. But anyway... I'm a spiritual being having a human experience. And what I need to do is I need to go back to the spirituality after I've had my human experience. And so what I'm I'm continuing to do is to continuing to work on that. Uh, I I'm I like I said, it's prayer, meditation, it's finding the God of my understanding. Uh and you know, today my God loves me just exactly the way I am. He wants me to be happy, joyous, and free. And, you know, uh, and I try to, uh, one of the things I try to do, and I don't know why this just came in my mind, I get strange thoughts, is that I try to listen to other people. Now, not getting into, this is a, a divided world. Today, I try to listen to both sides. And I try to 
not interject myself into someone else's life. I just listen. I might ask questions. Others, uh, I'm not Jewish, but someone told me one time that uh, rabbis usually answer a question with a question. I don't know if that's true or not, but sometimes I'll just ask a question after somebody asks me a question. And so what it is, is I try to listen today and I find a spirituality of that. I find spirituality in following my plan of eating. I find spirituality in listening. Uh, I heard very early on, there were two men talking. One said to the other, you know, no matter what anybody says, I just say you're right. The guy looked at him and said, oh, no, no, you need to talk. You need to tell what the truth is. You need to speak your mind. Well, the guy looked back at him and said, you know something, you're right. And that's what I try to do on a daily basis. So I don't know if that helps or not, but that's what it is. Uh, Priscilla? Thank you for your share. Welcome. Um, thank you for connecting the uh, chronic depression with the food and, and eating patterns and how you are managing your ability to stay sober, even with the clinical depression. Um, I've also, uh, I, I'm struggling with that as well. So I really deeply appreciate your share. Um, I am having difficulty finding, I'm fairly new and I'm having difficulty finding that of my understanding. So when we keep emphasizing finding the God and being grateful to God, I just can't find it. Priscilla, you just went, can you just fix your microphone? You just went a little muted and we couldn't hear everything. Can you hear me now? That's better. Okay. So uh, finding the God of your understanding, it's just a construct. So communicating and with God of your understanding, which is just a construct for me because I don't have a spiritual God. It's just very difficult for me to connect emotionally and also truly believe it. I don't believe that there really is a God. So it's, it's hard to be in a program where there's a lot of reliance on the word God or the construct of God. And how do I connect to it? emotionally so i can uh i can actually yeah so i can actually feel thank you um i have a tape of roseanne speaking which i often play at a sunday night meeting and other meetings and roseanne our founder uh talks about the fact is and she probably talks about this in uh beyond your wildest dreams which is her book that she did not believe in god she did not have a spiritual program. And uh, what she did was she had to come into, she actually, and when she wrote the first 12 steps for Old Readers Anonymous, she took the word God out of the, out of the steps. And uh, what she had to do was come to grips with it. And what she came to believe was she started to use, you know, we often use, and I use it to higher power, power greater than myself. And I had to look at, I have people that I sponsor when I'm sponsoring them and they have problems with God. I have them look at uh, things like, you know, when have things happened in your life that shouldn't have happened? 
For instance, I was traveling one time and I had gone to L.A. for work. I flew to New York and worked. I flew back to New, uh, to Chicago. Then I flew to Houston and I was just catching a plane. Didn't wasn't even have time. Then I was flying back to L.A. Really tired, really whatever. And I ran into two people at the airport that I went to meetings with on a regular basis. Is that a coincidence or is that a God thing? And so what I have to look at. That's time for questions. Okay. Okay. Uh, can I finish this real quick? Yeah. And uh, so what I did was I had to look at the coincidences in my life. Were they a God thing or were they not a God thing? About two years in, I almost ate because I got angry at a, an, uh, at a client. And I went to a store and I was sitting out drinking a Diet Coke and I was going to go in and buy some candy bar, ice cream bars. And a woman came out and st- I was figuring out how many will I buy? Not if I was going to buy them, how many? A woman came out and stopped in the trash can in front of me. She pulled out an ice cream bar and ate it, threw the wrapper away. She pulled out another ice cream bar and ate it through that wrapper away. And I said, God is telling me I don't need to overeat right now. So that's what I have to look for. I have to look who God is putting in my life to tell me that there is a God and that I don't have to eat over it. 